welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes and their families who are confronting abusive coaches. This podcast is for parents and athletes who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. While I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast, the contents are never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your circumstances. Past episodes of the show can be found on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And when you visit the website, have a look around. I've put lots of information there for you that will help answer your questions and will provide some options for you. Don't forget to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. If you're ready to speak confidentially with an attorney, please feel free to call me. You can reach me at 212-709-8141. And if anything in this show resonates with you, if you think it could be helpful to a parent, an athlete, a friend, share the episode. And don't forget to do two other things. Subscribe to the show. Also, leave a rating and a review. I read all of your reviews. All right, let's talk. I'm glad you're here and ready to listen. I remember being in law school and part of the law school experience is having to read cases. And then you're reading cases and then you come into class and you have to sit in front of the teachers and your peers and dissect those cases using the Socratic method. So many times I had absolutely no idea what the court was trying to say. I thought I knew that one my reading of a case was going to end up with one result only to be thrown some curve or some language that sent me to the dictionary or either made me fall asleep. So it is exciting in the life of an attorney when you get a court opinion, a court holding that is one, interesting, two, relevant, and three, you can actually follow along. And that's what happened yesterday when the Supreme Court issued its ruling in the case of the NCAA versus Alston. There were other parties to this um, action, but for sake of this discussion, it's the NCAA versus Alston. So on June 20. 2021. I printed out the opinion, have it here, uh, read through it last night. It wasn't that long and it was written using pretty straightforward terms. And what I did is that I wanted to have a very objective, open mind as I was approaching this reading, this decision. I had this burning question. I wanted to know while I was reading this, if in fact it was just greed, if it was just being singular in your objective, in your business model, what was the reason why the NCAA filed this writ, why they requested to come before the Supreme Court and have the Supreme Court decide these issues, hopefully in their favor? You know, when you're an attorney or just in any sense, when you have to do any act of persuasion, any sales, you always want to understand the position of your opponent or the other side's argument. You want to really understand it. You want to understand their position. It's only through understanding and truly dissecting the arguments 
of the other side that you can then one, see the weaknesses in your argument, and then two, address more clearly what is more powerful, what's more persuasive about your argument. Now, I had a, and have had from past discussions, from reading about, from following this case, and forming my own opinion, I came down squarely on the side supporting the student athletes. This podcast is about student athletes. I reflect and think about what's best in the realm of student child athletes, competitive youth sports, but I didn't want to just default to that setting. I wanted to be objective. So we're going to spend some time. We're just going to dissect this and we're going to talk about this. You, I wanted to put on my best lawyer hat. I wanted to reserve my judgment, ponder and sit with the arguments. So we're going to start at the trial level. So this case has been going on for years and it made its way through the court starting in the trial level. And then from the trial level, it moves up to the appellate court. And then from the appellate court, it then moves its way up to the Supreme Court. I have to say, I'll start out with and what I found to be the overarching tone. This is my take on the tone of the Supreme Court's opinion. It was kind of a tone of, you know, NCAA, why are you being so whiny? Why are you acting like privileged kids. I kind of took it a little bit. There were little flickers, in my opinion, where the court basically, you know, slapped them like, get over yourself. What are you complaining about? You have so much. What more do you need? Stop being greedy. That's the tone that I felt the opinion had. I don't know. For example, this is what I'm basing that on. At one point, the court actually says, I'm not sure what the problem is with the NCAA. Why? And basically, why are we here? There's another point that goes on to say, in essence, the NCAA, that they should stop, you know, conjuring up, making up wild hypotheticals of what could go wrong. And that if the NCAA really needed some type of clarification on what the lower courts had decided that they should, in fact, go to the lower courts, ask for clarification, which is a procedure that you can do in a party to a lawsuit. If a court issues some type of injunction, some type of enjoining or telling you that you can't do something, you can then make an application directly to that court asking for clarification on the behavior that you cannot do. And so the Supreme Court was saying at one point, why are we here? If you want clarification, go back to the lower court. Don't bother us. That's what I found. So let's talk, dive a little bit deeper here for a second. Now, spoiler alert, the Supreme Court affirmed that means they agreed with the decision of the lower courts, of the appellate court and the district court. So they agreed with that. The issues that came before the court or what they were trying to decide are these. The Supreme Court was trying to decide whether this concept of horizontal pricing or price fixing in the market, whether that really amounted to the NCAA exercising a monopoly or control over the market. Now, the NCAA, they were objecting. They were saying that principally that the lower court erred, that they made an error in restricting the way that they restricted, they made an error by restricting the NCAA's ability to dictate athlete compensation. In their view, the defendant's view, in this case, the defendants are the NCAA, the court should have used a different analysis to arrive at their decision. So what was in question is the Sherman Act. The plaintiffs in this case, at the lower level, they were called plaintiffs. They then, once you get to the Supreme Court, they're 
refer to as the petitioners and the respondents. But just for ease, we're going to call the student athletes the plaintiffs. So the plaintiffs in this case and the law that was being looked at and analyzed is the Sherman Act. And so under the Sherman Act, there's specific, there's an analysis. If someone brings a claim to saying that that's been violated, there is an analysis that a court must use to figure out whether in fact the Sherman Act has been violated. And there's different, I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. There's a different way to review. So you have an abbreviated, what we call an abbreviated quick review, where you just look to see if there's some type of sufficient need or there's an approval or whether there's a rule of reason, a longer review analysis that must be done. So the NCAA, they were just, and the the students, they were disputing this act, but here's the thing, disputing rather whether it was a violation. In the case before the Supreme Court, it was not the students who requested that the Supreme Court take another look at the decision. It was actually the NCAA that brought this writ before the Supreme Court or request that the lower course decision be reviewed. The NCAA argued, they were arguing before the Supreme Court that based on its interpretation, that NCAA interpretation, that the court should analyze violations of this um, Sherman Act by using a very quick abbreviated analysis. The NCAA, part of their argument before the court was also that it wanted to maintain that amateurism in college sports, it served a purpose of, and it was important for a non-commercial objective of higher education. So they were saying that the athletes should be viewed as amateurs and that served a very viable, rational, needed purpose that college sports not be commercialized and that that was the purpose of, you know, the athlete, the college experience. So to understand the court's analysis, what they did is that they, at certain points in the decision, they talked about the analysis used by the courts when they're determining whether there's been some type of violation in the Sherman Act. And here are some of the things that they use in that analysis. They talk about, the court talked about that some ventures, some forms, now just really quick, the Sherman Act, this all deals with free markets. It deals with consumer markets. It deals with firms, enterprises, businesses. So that's kind of the main crux, the main point of the Sherman Act. And that's why the parties were here. So the court in their analysis, they said, um, that enterprises, that businesses that do not have impact on the consumer market, if there's no real significant impact, then you don't need to go into an in-depth, deep analysis. That, that wouldn't be necessary. But firms that have the power to raise prices or, as they call it, curtail the output and have an agreement, if their agreement, if it's not really going to harm the consumer, then it makes sense to say that that type of enterprise, that type of business is benign. You don't need to go deep into that analysis under the Sherman Act. However, on the other end of that, when courts are looking at and trying to analyze a violation of the Sherman Act, there's some agreements, there's some competition, there's some competitors that really, and it's so obvious that it may be a threat to the markets and to prices that that action or what that enterprises doing to a market that it should be condemned and it might be unlawful. So there's a spectrum that's used by the court in its analysis. And the court took some time to talk about that and go through that. Here's an example 
of the analysis tool that the court used. So for example, the court gave an example. They stated, unlike customers who can look elsewhere if they're trying to get a van to rent a van and that company raises its prices, people can go otherwhere. They can look other places in the market that doesn't have a significant impact. But the lower court found and the Supreme Court agreed that the student athletes They have nowhere else to go to sell their labor, that the NCAA controlled the market. And even if the NCAA, they're calling themselves, even if you consider them a joint venture, meaning the affiliation that they have with the member schools, you can't just quickly look and quickly analyze whether the NCAA was violating the Sherman Act. Here's the thing. The NCAA, the plaintiffs, they wanted the court to use and analyze the Sherman Act, to use the tool that required the court or asked the court to very quickly determine whether there was a violation. And the court said, no, 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 no. You control a market. You have significant impact on this market. And also student Athletes have to engage in this market alone, Division I athletes, football and basketball players. So there's not going to be a quick look and go analysis that this needs a more reasonable look under the Sherman Act. The NCAA, for their part, what they really wanted to do is they wanted to, as part of their argument, to support their position. They wanted to tie the hands of the Supreme Court. They wanted to bind them. And they wanted to do that based on a concept that we call precedent. Precedent is the following and the deference that courts give to case law, to prior cases, prior holdings and decisions. So the NCAA said, well, wait a minute, court, wait a minute, Supreme Court justices. There is a prior case, the Board of Regents. And under that Board of Regents, we want you to follow that case because in that case, there was a comment made in that case. And I believe that case is from 1994. And the NCAA said that that case should guide you. That case, there was was a portion that the plaintiffs that they use or the petitioners used in their briefs, their written briefs before the court. And they argued, they said that the Board of Regents court commented on student athlete compensation. And that court said that it's a revered part of college sports, the concept of amateurism. And the court said there can be no question, but there has to be wide or ample latitude given to having amateurism and preserving that amateurism in the student-athlete experience. And so the NCAA believed that the Board of Regents, that that portion of that court decision, the prior court decision, meant that the Supreme Court, that they shouldn't look any further than that precedent in that case law, and that it was squarely on point and supported their position, that the reason for the NCAA maintaining such tight control over athlete compensation, their name, image, and likeness, was because the prior court found that amateurism is college sports. It's germane. It's important to college sports. Now, just a brief aside, you know, there's this thing about uh, precedents, the court following precedents, and I'm going to go just a little bit off of what, you know, I'm going to take off my lawyer hat here and put on my strictly opinion hat and tell you, I remember so many times as a young attorney, you're reading these court opinions and you see the facts up front and you, you just say, I know, I know that this is going to end out in favor of this party and especially in matters and 
cases that have to do with criminal law and the criminal justice system. So, so many times the individuals in those cases are individuals of minority, people of color, and you're reading these cases and some of the facts are so egregious. Maybe it's conduct by the law and by law enforcement. And you're thinking, oh, well, this is so clear cut. And you're reading your way, you're sneaking your way through the court opinion. And then you get down to the portion where the justice is going to write out that it's going to finally, you know, give you the decision. You think it's going to be right on target and in favor and just to the opposite. It just veers left. And usually now I know that when you see such words as reasonable man, totality of the circumstances, not a detriment to light most favorable, you know right away, I know right away that, you know, in my opinion, that there's going to be a decision that flies in the face of reason, what I consider reason. So precedent, that's just my little take on precedent and how it can be damaging to individuals of color, individuals that are not usually belong to the wider majority or have been kept out of our country's systems, of our country's history and the courts who have been considered less than or labeled less than. In particular, there was the 1940, was it 41 or 42 case involving Japanese internment camps. And it was a gentleman who was born here in America his ancestors were from Japan. And this is just as the war broke out. And you had the president at the time okay and allow the department of the military to create these internment camps. And individuals that were from Japan had never seen the country. So children that were born here in America, they and their parents, first it started out with a curfew. I think it was that they had to be in their homes by 6 p.m. and they couldn't leave again till 8 a.m. And then after that, they were then moved to internment camps. I know I'm bearing aside, but I'm saying all this to say that that case, which is now considered egregious and horrible, that case still has not been overturned. And I'm going to get you the name of that case and put it in the show notes. But it had to do with the, you know, the racism with being marginalized, with being singled out in our country's history. And that is still precedent today. It's precedent that Donald Trump used during his presidency to justify the detainment and the restriction of travel of individuals entering the United States. So that's some of the just precedent. So, okay, back to NCAA v. Alston. So the Supreme Court rejected the plaintiff's argument that they should follow the Board of Regents case, the 1984 case. They went on to say that that was just mentioned during the course of that case, that it wasn't a guiding principle directing later decisions and later courts that they had to follow the Board of Regents when it came to questions of athlete compensation. So the court rejected that argument. Even at one point, as I was saying before, it seems that the court was actually frustrated with the arguments of the NCAA. It says, it's unclear exactly what the NCAA seeks. If the NCAA wants judicially ordained immunity, if they want to be immune from the Sherman Act, 
and its restraints. If they are asking the court to overlook restrictions because the NCAA, they operate in the intersection of higher education, sports, and money, we're not going to agree. So I found that part to be especially, uh, it, it made me smile because the court is actually, they're throwing up their hands like, what are you guys asking for here? What do you want? You want us to tell you, you want us to give you some ordained, you know, take out our wand and, you know, knight you that you are you because you are quote unquote operating in higher education, that you should be immune, that you should be untouchable under the Sherman Act. Not a chance because you know what you're doing? You're really playing at the intersection that can be dangerous. It's almost a perfect storm. Higher education, a business model that we all buy into, parents buy into, sports and money. I mean, what, when I think about that, and when you think about what are three aspects that generate billions of dollars, can you think of any other, maybe cosmetic and clothing, maybe, but even that's folded into some of these things, higher education, sports and money. There's no better place to play. And the NCAA realizing this, in my opinion, is asking the court, Hey, do you mind making us immune from the law? You know, just don't, don't bother with making us follow. We're, we're just, we're just amateurs over here. We're really not, you know, doing anything. Stop, stop looking at us, you know, stop trying to regulate us. You know, what's the big deal? Here's why it is a big deal. So this is a two-part series and we're going to start to wind down and then I will come back with the second part of this series. Here's a little bit of why it's a big deal that the NCAA is able to stand in the intersection of higher education, sports, and money. Here's some historical context. In 1852, students from Harvard and Yale participated, and I'm getting this, rephrasing this from the court's decision. They participated in the nation's first collegiate competition. It was a boat race in New Hampshire. I'm not even going to try to say the name of that. And it was sponsored, this race in New Hampshire between the two schools, it was sponsored by a railroad executive. So very prominent railroad executive. And he did this because he wanted to promote travel within this area. So he said, you know what? Great idea. Here's a promotional. Two of the most named noted colleges. We're going to sponsor a boat race using athletes. It brought out hundreds of people. They offered the competitors prizes, all expense paid vacations. And guess what? All the alcohol, unlimited alcohol that people can drink. I mean, that must've been some party, but it wasn't until later. So that was the first kind of intercollegiate competition. But what really happened and when college sports really took off, is with football. By the late 1800s, there was a rivalry, a traditional rivalry between Princeton and Yale that attracted over 40,000 spectators and generated in excess of $25,000. I don't know the the calculations, but we're talking, you know, in the 1800s and the early, the early 1900s. So $25,000 must've been a lot during that time as incentives for the players to show you how we get to the NCAA and what they're asking and why the court sees what they're asking is so preposterous that even in the 1800s, that individuals were rewarded with athletes were rewarded with free meals, tuition. There was a Yale 
tackle, James Hogan, that was given a trip to Cuba. The practice of money, college, and sports grew so much that there was a term and there was a concept called tramp athletes. And these athletes, according to the court, roamed the country and they would make very just brief one-time appearances in athletic games because they were trying to get the best price for their skills. So if they knew a game was being played in one state, guess what? They would go and they would join that team to get money and to get favors. However, this is what happened. In 1905, there was a real crisis. Football was wildly popular, but guess what? it became very violent. There was a play, football play called the Flying Wedge that was increasingly dangerous to the athletes, to the student athletes. And also there was almost no productive gear. In between 1893 and 1905, there were approximately seven fatalities, seven deaths in football. Then it increased to 12 deaths, athletes. And then by 1905, there were 18 fatalities in football. What that caused is that prompted the president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, to call together a meeting. He said, all right, you Ivy League colleges, administration, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, let's have a sit down, let's have a meeting, let's talk about the growth of and the popularity of college football, and let's see if we can set some rules and make this game a little bit more safe. And that meeting is really what set the groundwork and set the context for what we now know to be the NCAA. A little bit more on the history. One of the first, one of the early rules, the bylaws that the organization set as a result of that meeting between Harvard, Princeton, and Yale was that no student shall represent a college or university in any game or contest who was paid either directly or indirectly any money or financial concessions. And at the time, it was called the Intercollegiate Athletic Association. Now, you can say that, but remember, there was already the tone set. There was already the expectation of sports being tied to money, being tied to favors and incentives. Individuals and businesses, businesses profited, just like the railroad executive used the competition in New Hampshire to draw a crowd with booze and athletes. It kind of reminds you of that whole sense of, you know, gladiators come out. It's a day. It's an event. So there was that expectation was set. So even though this rule was drafted as part of the early bylaws between the three schools, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, little changed. So by 1929, the University of California, the athletic, their revenue was over 480,000. That's in the early 1900s. And it's reported that Harvard, the football revenue alone was at 429,000. This is a funny story. And then we're going to wrap up uh, part one of this. There was a halfback at the University of Wisconsin, Hugh McKinney. He became known as the first college football player that took a pay cut. His salary went down when he turned pro. So that's how much the money and the incentives and the endorsements that college football players were getting at that time and how embedded business was in this. So after that, you know, it continues to flourish. By 1948, the NCAA sought to put further restraints However, here's something interesting that observers at that time and experts who studied 
and understood the the benefits that the NCAA was reaping. They actually referred to the NCAA as the NCAA cartel. And they believed that the NCAA, what they were really doing is that they had understood that they had a ability to benefit if athlete compensation was restricted or if they only provided tuition. They found that the organization were behaving like a cartel and that the member schools were able to set and enforce the rules that limit athletes' ability to earn and to pay. So you have this this first very unregulated in the 1800s new market for college sports. It grew with the popularity of football. You saw individuals taking advantage of this, both on the athlete side, but then also on the business side. You see that there then is some type of means or some type of agreement to address this with the meeting with the president and the three schools. However, that's not what happened. It continued. And you see that the NCAA realizing that they could benefit and that they could control and referred to as the NCAA cartel by some, that they could use the popularity of football, of basketball, of college sports to grow their business model. But yet, and in my opinion, the Supreme Court sees through their veil attempt to call themselves, well, well, no, we're just trying to regulate an amateur experience by student athletes. The court says, no, what you are and where you operate is at the intersection of higher education, sports, and business. And because of that, any assertion that you are violating federal law, the Sherman Act, requires that it there be a real analysis. So I'm going to end part one of this series here. When I come back, we're just going to, I'm going to continue very briefly about the current day figures, revenue that the NCAA generates. So many people have heard of those numbers, but we're going to talk about the salaries and why it is that the NCAA came before the court. Again, remember, the court is saying, why are you here? The court, I said at the top of the show, affirmed the decisions of the lower court. And we'll talk about how actually, in my opinion, the lower court decision, the district court and the appellate court, that they did give wide leeway, that there was no reason for the NCAA to continue the litigation, to come back before the Supreme Court. And really, what they were trying to do is be greedy, is to ask for more, is to throw around the privilege that they've been enjoying for over a hundred years. And they wanted this court, the Supreme Court, to judicially ordain them and give them complete immunity to put a bubble wrap around them, a force field around them so that they can move among college sports, money, and business with complete impunity and a lack of consideration for the student athletes who in a prior podcast, I term and I believe in many respects to be student laborers. That's what we'll talk about in part two. Thank you for joining me as I assess the recent Supreme Court ruling in the case of the NCAA versus Alston. Enjoy the rest of your day and see you back here on part two. Take care.
All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.